This is episode 17 with Professor Alan Wu, historian, scholar, and author of the book, The Color of Success, Asian Americans and the Origins of the Model Minority. Welcome to Asian Tech Leaders. My name is Justin Peng, and each week we share insights from Asian tech leaders to help inspire and guide you to reach your full potential. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get started. Professor Alan Wu is the Associate Professor in the Department of History at Indiana University, Bloomington, and she's a director of the Asian American Studies Program. Professor Wu is the author of the book, The Color of Success, Asian Americans and the Origins of the Model Minority. Her commentary has been featured by a number of outlets, including the LA Times, Washington Post, and NPR. I really enjoyed this conversation with Professor Wu, and I highly recommend you check out her book, The Color of Success. In the book, Professor Wu does an amazing job of weaving together the complex and changing attitudes towards Asian immigrants in the United States, starting from the 1800s when Asians were outcasts of society to the mid-20th century when they were labeled the model minority. In this episode, you will learn more about how Asian Americans progressed so much over the last hundred years, how World War II was a catalyst that accelerated civil rights and socioeconomic opportunities for Asian Americans, why the term model minority isn't as positive as you might think, and how Asian Americans can do a better job of supporting African Americans. Especially in light of all the social injustice that is happening in the world right now, it is the perfect time to better appreciate the arc of Asian Americans in history so that we can better recognize our privilege and be more emboldened to bring equality in the world. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Professor Wu as much as I did, and let's get started. Hi, Ellen. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Justin. I'm so psyched to be here. Likewise. And I I have to say, um, I've spent um, some time digging into your book, The Colors of Success, Asian Americans and the Origins of the Model Minority. And I just have to start by saying a big thank you, because I do feel like um, your work and your research um, is such a service to the Asian community and helping to wrap up the story in a concise, thorough and also objective way that um, as an Asian Canadian and an Asian who's who's lived in the States for about eight years, I just wish I found this book earlier because up until um, I read the book, I had always been grappling with this idea of, you know, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, right? And there are lots of people and things that have happened in the world that have helped um, set up Asian Americans to um, be where they are today. And I uh, want to give you a big, big kudos to to you and the book that you wrote, because I do think it is such a great um, reflection of the Asian American history and the story in which uh, a lot of us today are really benefiting from. Um, so excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, lots of stuff that we want to talk about, especially you know what's happening in the world right now. Um, but before we get to the present, thought we could start with the past. Um, so the question I'd want to start off with is, imagine um, an Asian American was dropped in the United States or North America 100 years ago, let's say like 1920. What was life like back then? For an Asian. That's a great question. You know, when um, I'm just so, so our imaginary time machine about 100 years ago, 1920, whether you were in Canada or the United States, I would say life was really tough for somebody of either East Asian or South Asian ancestry. <clears throat> and the reason is so I'll backtrack a little bit. Um, 
Asian folks be began coming to North America around the time of like the California gold rush. So we're talking like 1850s, 1860s. And at that time, and I, I'm more, I will say I'm more familiar with the U.S. history than Canadian history, but there are definitely parallels. Um, at that moment, the United States was like kicking really into high gear, sort of this like industrial, you know, transformation, right? And this sort of capitalist uh, uh, machine and, and, and they needed workers. So Asian folks, starting with Chinese, but eventually with uh, Japanese, with South Asians from India, Koreans, uh, Filipinos. These are the groups we see around 1920 from Asia, and they are workers. They're the working class. So they are doing jobs, you know, like uh, farming, farm work. Um, and actually, a lot of them weren't allowed to actually own the land. So they were usually, far, a lot of them are farm hands. Uh, in the United States, in the West, they did other kinds of work such as uh, working, you know, obviously the most famous example is building the railroads in both the United States and Canada. Uh, one of, on my mom's side, I have relatives who, who did that work in Canada. And then um, they did, um, service jobs as well, uh, sort of menial service jobs. So, so employment issues were difficult. And by the time that the Chinese started to come in significant numbers, especially to California in the 1870s and then by the 1880s, white workers started to see their presence as a threat to their own livelihoods. So, you know, at the same time, you know, California is this really, um, in dynamic place in a way because there's so so many people migrating in a lot of workers people coming for the gold rush they're staying hopefully to find work you know this is also after the abolition of slavery and there's this anxiety about what the future of the american workforce essentially will look like and for white people uh, they were very invested in this idea that you know they were free workers they were not like uh, you know slaves and, and when the Chinese started coming in and because they were recruited by the large railroad companies and actually paid lower wages, you know, these were in some ways a good deal for Chinese workers. They can make a lot more here doing that work than, than at home in China, but they were often paid less than uh, white workers. <clears throat> so white workers started to see Chinese as a threat to their existence. And the fact that the Chinese, you know, they weren't Christian, they, you know, dressed strangely supposedly ate really weird foods even you know being accused of eating things like you know rat, rats and rice as opposed to meat and potatoes um all of this kind of became this pressure cooker and really built into a chinese exclusion movement both in canada and the united states and so in the united states uh by 1882 the u.s congress passes uh the landmark chinese exclusion act and that is the first law, immigration law in U.S. history, to ban a group from entry by race and by class. And Chinese exclusion really does become, I would say, a foundational for the United States building its modern architect architecture of immigration policy, immigration law, immigration management. <clears throat> and that's really one about, you know, restriction, deportation, all these things. So by, by um, and, and so because the Chinese were so restricted, employers started recruiting other kinds of workers to the West. And so we saw the Japanese come in um, later when the United States um, 
colonized the Philippines after they won the Spanish-American War. They also recruited Filipino workers who were now U, what was called U.S. nationals, right? They had not really U.S. citizenship, but they were under U.S. jurisdiction. And so they were a new source of essentially imperial labor as well. Um, and then there were folks coming, smaller numbers from India to uh, like British Columbia and the United States West Coast. Um, some of them were actually um, anti-imperialists, so fighting for British independence for India, India's independence from Britain, uh, as well as, um, so they were very radical in their politics, actually. Um, and so over time, the United States and Canada built up a whole web of, of laws and practices and sort of cultural knowledge that degraded Asian people, that barred them from becoming naturalized citizens, that forced them to attend segregated schools, um, live in segregated areas of towns, uh, their children, even born and raised in the United States or Canada did not have, um, you know, even if they went to college, they didn't often have many employment prospects outside of their ethnic communities. Um, as one young Japanese American around that time famously put it, I think in the 1930s, that he was just going to be a professional carrot washer, even though he was an educated person. Uh, and, and even in the 1920s, by 1922, 1923, the United States Supreme Court ruled in two separate cases one with a Japanese American and one with an Indian American, that um, Asians were unequivocally, you know, like completely decidedly not white and because they weren't considered white or black, that they were not eligible to become U.S. citizens. So life was pretty grim if you were a person of Asian ancestry in 1920. Wow. And then, you know, your book <laughs> does such a eloquent and... Um, great job of kind of, you know, talking about what actually spurred um, the transformation of how Asian Americans were viewed and treated in the 20s to how they were viewed and treated just 20, 25 years later um, around World War II. So um, for those who don't know, share a little bit more about how World War II really changed the um, civil rights and standings of Asians who were in America. Okay, so that's a great question. I think the short answer would be that um, Asian, the, the social standing, right, the position, the opportunities of Asians in the United States, I would say um, has always been tied to the relationship that the United States has with their home country, their sending country, okay, or even not even their home country, even if you're born here, right? So that would be, you know, China or Japan or India, or Korea, Vietnam, and so forth. Um, and what World War II really changed was that it was this de like defining moment when the United States was becoming a world power. It was fighting a global war in the name of freedom and democracy against Nazis and fascists. And there is this interesting tension at this moment. On the one hand, uh, because the United States went to war with Japan and there was a lot of racial profiling, the United States government as well as the Canadian government <clears throat> decided to remove and incarcerate, uh, you know, in the United States, tens of thousands, hundred, about almost between 110, 120,000 uh, people of Japanese ancestry, regardless of where, whether or not they were U.S. citizens, um, and two thirds of them were, and they were all basically assumed to be enemy aliens or potentially enemy aliens. Uh, who would aid Japan in, J in, the, in the Pacific War. And so Japanese Americans on the Pacific Coast 
you know, spent that time in prison camps. Um, now, on the other hand, because the United States was fighting the Pacific War and allied with China, that created this new opening to begin unraveling Chinese exclusion. So in 1943, Congress decided to repeal Chinese exclusion. At that time, very symbolically, they only allowed like 105 uh, Chinese each year to be admitted. So if, I mean, imagine 105 anything, right? It's like, I don't what's a good comparison? Um, when I tell my students sometimes, if I'm teaching a class of like 60 students, I say, that's just like twice the size of this class, barely. Um, <clears throat> but what that meant was at the time of World War II, as the United States began to become a world power, American leaders became more self-conscious about the United States global image, right? It's branding essentially. And, you know, if you're going to be this world power and you're fighting these wars and in the name of freedom and democracy, it looks pretty bad if you still have all this, all these racist practices at home, right? So Africans, Americans understood this really well. And World War II for them was this big turning point in their civil rights movement. Uh, and, and, and for various Asian groups, um, this also then becomes this, this moment where they can start to see acceptance. So I will just add though, I think what's surprising, and I do discuss this in my book in that first chapter, is that even as um, the United States um, was taking on this, um, what we know, what we usually call Japanese American internment, by 1943, 1944, government leaders, you know, they looked around and they said, we can't, this is unsustainable essentially, right? And we don't want to end up with what looks like Indian reservations. So let's take this, you know, unfortunate situation and let's try to turn this into an opportunity to assimilate Japanese Americans. So the U.S. government, like literally and truly, what they did was try to uh, take these prisoners of war that they had accused of being potentially enemy aliens and turn them into model American citizens. So one way they did that was encouraging Japanese Americans to join the U.S. armed forces. And the other way was to encourage them to move away from the West Coast and try to, quote unquote, resettle or blend in to white middle class communities away from the West Coast in the Midwest and on the East Coast. And they could go choose any place they wanted to and choose how they would actually get reintegrated? Or was that process actually quite well managed by the government as well? Um, I would say the government definitely set the turn. So people had to, individual young people, a lot of these were young people who decided to do this. Only about a third of Japanese Americans who were prisoners, uh, quote unquote, resettled. Uh, they first had to pass like a clearance, you know, like a leave clearance and they'd be interviewed and they had to answer these like really astounding questions. Like, do you promise not to you know, speak Japanese in public or hang out in groups of more than two or three other Japanese people at one time? Will you, you know, dress in a certain way? So my, in my research, I uncovered this, um, this amazing story, I think, of Japanese American zoot suitors, right? We think of zoot suitors usually as Af African Americans or Mexican Americans, you know, the, the guys who wear like the, the, the long coats and the big hats and the pegged pants and, and they love like jazz and dancing. Um, but there were Japanese American zoot sitters, and, and these young men were a concern for authorities because they really stood out. And, and, they, and the way that they behaved and dressed actually suggested 
that they were actually not assimilating to the white middle class, but they found a lot more connection to other black and brown folks. And so they were definitely a, a troublesome uh, subgroup for authorities. So for the United States government, and they worked together with like um, religious groups, YMCA's, groups like that, you know, well-meaning white liberal folks. Um, but they really tried to engineer resettlement on their own terms, uh, on, on the terms of the government. Yeah. And overall, you know, the, the reintegration and assimilation was a, a success. And um, it sounds like the government also used that as a kind of example that they wanted to share with the rest of the world or the rest of the country that um, it was possible to assimilate with, um, you know, the rest of the country and kind of move upward in society. Is, is that a fair characteristic or how, how would you kind of uh, sum up kind of the impact of the um, assimilation of Japanese from internments to uh, back in society? I think, um, I think that's a great question. I would say it was definitely a mixed bag. And so at one level, because the United States, uh, you know, they actually worried that Japan was circulating stories about how racist the U.S. was against Japanese Americans around the Pacific. You know, yeah. Japan's trying to expand its empire in the Pacific, right? Um, and the U.S. leaders were conscious of this. And so they, they were actually, there basically was a PR campaign and it happened at two levels. So definitely engineered by um, the military and the, and the federal government. And they would tell and celebrate essentially these, these success stories of Japanese Americans um, who were very loyal to the United States, fought hard um, for the war efforts or for the defense industries or the resettlers, you know, they were blending in. Um, and and I, I'm not, I should just qualify this, and I'm, this is in no way, I'm not suggesting that um, this was like not true, because I do think people, individual Japanese Americans did, uh, you know, many lost their lives, right, for, for the United States in this war. But, but we have to remember uh, these stories, these success stories were a propaganda effort, right? And, and what they left out were the stories of, um, Japanese Americans who resisted the draft or Japanese Americans who renounced their uh, U.S. citizenship because they felt all this was, <laughs> this is like a cluster F, you know, and, and they, they just saw this as so hypocritical. Um, or Japanese Americans who even, who got the clearance and resettled to places like Chicago. But eventually they did start hanging out with one another. You know, they didn't just, it wasn't actually so easy to bl just blend in with white, white people, you know, if you imagine in 1943, just like today, I mean, different in some ways, but there were riots going around the country and they were race riots. Um, around the country, Japanese Americans, the Japanese are still the enemy, right? So I feel like this must have been a very traumatic time and very, um, a lot of pressure for these young people who on the one hand, the government is saying, you know, you're like ambassadors for your community, but, um, there's just all this other heavy stuff going on in society. Yeah. Right. So that, that was kind of the path of the Japanese American. What about the Chinese American at that time? Okay. Um, right. So there's uh, definitely a contrast. So for Chinese Americans, World War II really is this turning point in, in terms of their opportunities in U.S. society. So remember, we talked about uh, before World War II, uh, how Asian, the whole Asian exclusion system was very restrictive for Chinese. Um, but because 
again, China was that ally during World War II. Um, at one level, there is, again, government propaganda. There was an office called the Office of War Information that would, you know, send out, like, you know, basically advertisements. <laughs> Imagine, I guess, Google, you know, the kind of targeted advertisements, right? Um, yeah. But ads, and, and then they would work with, like, um, you know, mainstream magazines. Um, I'm thinking, like, there was a popular magazine called Look, which was kind of like Life magazine, and they would do lots of pictures. In 1944, they had a huge spread about San Francisco Chinatown and, and how American they are. They're, like, they're like culturally unique, but, but there was this moment um, by the 1940s where liberals were saying, it's kind of like diversity. Like, yeah. we're all Americans, but we can appreciate yeah, I think so one of the pictures in your book was like a Japanese family reading the Saturday morning cartoons or something like that. It's like, right. look, that, uh, Asian Americans are just like us. They love the comics <laughs> on yeah. the Sunday paper. Exactly. Like the kids and the grandpa in, in Chinatown. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's this whole, at that time, they called it cultural pluralism. Again, today we would call it, you know, diversity. Um, but there is this moment and, and the United States government is very invested in this because they need people to be soldiers and defense workers, right? They need the American people on board with this war effort. And so after World War II, I, things uh, also become shaky for, for Chinese Americans, however, and that is because of, um, you know, the Chinese Civil War and then the Communist Revolution and then the People's Republic of China, uh, you know, gets founded in 1949 and then the Korean War happens and the PRC enters that war on the side of the North Koreans. So there's this moment in like 1950 where Chinese Americans are, you know, terrified that they might have to, they might undergo a similar concentration camp experience that Japanese Americans did, had just gone through just a few years before. Um, and again, you know, worry that people would see that their face and automatically assume not that, not just that they're foreigners, but that they're communists, right? And in this moment in the 1950s, being tagged as a communist is like, <laughs> could lead to almost like social death, right? People lost their jobs and, and all kinds of ostracization. So that was worrisome. But I think the, the loophole for Chinese Americans was that because there was that Chinese American war and, and the nationalist Chinese left mainland China and they, they set up camp, right, in Taiwan, their government, the nationalist government and the, what they called the Republic of China, and the Taiwan became uh, the uh, you know the United States became a, a big ally, the biggest ally of of Taiwan, right? Um, and did not recognize the PRC. I think that allowed this wiggle room for Chinese in the U.S. to be thought of as the you know to say, hey, we're the good Chinese, we're not the bad Chinese. Now there were Chinese leftists in the United States, but um, often the conservative Chinese leadership in Chinatowns sometimes would work with like the FBI and there was, they were heavily, um, you know, under heavy surveillance and, and other sorts of, um, you know, targeting that really uh, silenced them in the fifties. Mm. And then talk about the term model minority. When did that actually start popping up as um, an association with Asian Americans? And um, I, 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 let's leave the question there and then I have some follow-up afterwards. Sure. Okay. So I think what is interesting, you know, in all my years of studying this, I've never been able to pinpoint like the exact starting point of this term. And I even tried the Google, I think it's called Ngram, you know, how you can search the terms. Um, 
But I will say this, and I want to just clear up a misconception. Um, there's a lot, a lot of times people like scholars or, you know, you'll, you'll read stories and they'll explain and they'll say the model minority term first appeared in this 1966 article in the New York Times Magazine by William Peterson. Um, but that's actually not true. I have read that article over and over like hundreds of times looking for that exact term. Um, but let's separate that, that term from the concept, okay? So um, by the 1940s and 50s and early 60s, Chinese and Japanese, who are the focus of my book, they were the two largest Asian populations. Uh, their public image is really does like a 180 and they're really recast as what I would call model citizens uh, who are, and in that context, in that time period, that meant that they were patriotic, that meant that they were anti-communist. Um, it also meant other things. And, and a, a big part of that was this idea that they had strong family values. They, they had a reverence for education. Um, they had, you know, they were obedient to their elders, all this kind of stuff. And these ideas actually started to bubble up um, and, and really gain traction in like the national conversation in the 1950s. And on the Chinese American side, there were actually Chinese American, essentially like strategists um, who were basically telling the story, you know, kind of, again, sort of this branding, like rebranding and saying, hey, um, Chinese Americans, we have these model families. So they, they circulated these stories and some of these stories made their way into mainstream media in, in like big places like the Saturday Evening Post and the New York Times. Um, and I think why other Americans were so interested in Chinese Americans being, you know, having especially these model children who were well-behaved, loved to study, never got into trouble, is that in the 1950s, there was a nationwide panic around juvenile delinquency. Um, so if you've ever seen that movie Rebel Without a Cause, right, 1955, it's like a classic with James Dean. Like that is like, the quintessential, like, you know, juvenile delinquent. And so the whole country is sort of, um, you know, wringing its hands about what they can do about this. Uh, and so that creates this moment for a Chinese to say, hey, you know, we, we, we are this model. So they are like model citizens in this uh, moment. And Japanese Americans too, because they're able um, in some ways to not evenly, and a lot of people did get left behind, but enough Japanese Americans were able to regroup their families, their livelihoods um, after World War II. And, they, and I think a lot of them still underwent this trauma, but, but enough of them started to do, find um, new ways to exist. You know, especially if you think about after World War II, there's this new kind of um, defense economy. So a lot of these second generation young people, they were college educated. Before the war, they couldn't necessarily find jobs outside the Japanese community. But after World War II, you know, you could work in um, defense industry, right, in California, let's say, um, as engineers or something. And, and there's this moment then that in the economy and then politically, and the United States, again, is fighting this Cold War and wants to look good. It wants to look inclusive of people of color racial minorities. Uh, and so it benefits the United States to become more inclusive. So these stories, again, I'm really invested in how this rebranding happened. And I think we have to understand that larger geopolitical context. And then by the 1960s, 
this success story of the well-behaved model Asian uh, citizens, Asian you know veterans, Asian um, Asian families. Um, this becomes very. This becomes of great interest to policymakers who are dealing with this up this massive racial upheaval. Right, we've got civil rights, we have black power. Um, by the late 60s, you know, there's a lot of unrest in the major urban, mid to late 60s, you know, unrest in major urban areas like um, Newark and Detroit. And literally there are policymakers and, and commentators, journalists who are pointing to um, Asian Americans and say, you know, if we take, let's say Asian Americans in a city like in Honolulu, right? Where in Hawaii, where Asians were a majority we can see how they're like the opposite of like the, what they would have called, and I'm using their terms, like, you know, like Negro troublemakers, this kind of thing um, in those cities like Newark and Detroit. So, you know, not only do they have these strong families and left to study, but they're not criminals. And so that's really important, right? This idea that Asians are model because they, um, they weren't delinquents, they weren't criminals. And, and that's really where I think the model minority concept begins to really gel and and specifically meaning asian folks are not black they're not like black people they are not not black and then you know that that concept really takes hold i think in american culture yeah and i think you know after reading your book i really understood much more of the history and also tone of the term model minority because being an Asian Canadian, model minority, if I'm in that group, I'm like, hey, that, I'm proud of that, right? Like, I want to be a model citizen to yeah. kind of, um, to kind of uh, use the terminology you're using. But I think what I love most about reading your book, The Color of Success, it, it, it actually helped me reframe that term model minority and actually realize, actually, I, I don't know if that's such a good thing. And I do think being in this kind of minor, model minority um, uh, segment of being Asian American and like there's a lot of responsibility and um, privilege that comes with that as well so one of the one of the the things that I found really fascinating about um, the story that you tell is you know this idea of kind of liberating and providing um, social justice and civil rights to Asian Americans was really started by liberals but later adopted by both liberals and conservatives in the 60s when as you said the black freedom movement um, started to arise and there's there's um, you know a couple sentences from your book that I wanted to read for for listeners on page 27 that says the racial logic that politicians scholars and journalists deployed to invent the model minority generated new modes of exclusion their reliance on culture to explain post-war Asian-American socioeconomic mobility remarked ethnic Japanese and Chinese as not white, indelibly foreign others, compromising their improvements in social standing. And this same reasoning also undergirded contentions that African-American cultural deficiencies was the cause of their poverty. Mm -hmm. Assertions that delegitimate delegitimize Blacks' demands for structural changes in the political economy and stigmatize their utilization of welfare state entitlements. Um, so obviously a long sentence, but for me, that was just such a powerful um, uh, moment for me, which was like, wow, I never thought about it like that. Never. Oh, 
Wow. I, I just never, you know, I never studied Asian American, Asian Canadian history. I, I never really thought about how it all interplayed with each other. So I really mm -hmm. appreciate you just like shedding more, more light on that and um, kind of want to like get your perspective on, on um, this idea of being in the model minority. Not, mm -hmm. it's obviously, you know, it, it did help Asian Americans and helped us um, get socioeconomic status and, and move up um, in, in the social hierarchy and economic hierarchy, but it wasn't helpful in, in advancing rights of other minorities, especially I mean, African-Americans. Um, so question for you here is, uh, you know, what do you think um, Asian Americans today should be should be doing or thinking about um, about ourselves as like this quote unquote model minority? And secondly, um, what are actions that you think we should be doing to you know lift up others, especially African Americans? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm totally embarrassed that sentence was so long, but thank you. No, there, for, for I, I didn't, I didn't say all the all, all the um, <laughs> the stoppages and dashes, but yeah, go ahead. Okay, um, you know, I think these are really profound questions, right? And once Asian Americans or Asian Canadians, we start. It's almost like the meaning of life kind of a question. So I'm going to, you know, elsewhere in the book, I, and I don't have the book in front of me right now, I cite a young Asian American, I would say radical, his name, and he, he was my professor at UCLA. He's, he's since passed away, but he was named Yuji Ichioka. And in the throes of this moment in the late 60s when Asian American first uh, identity, Asian American identity first coalesced um, as part of this Asian American movement, which really was like, inspired by black power and the, and, and the anti-war movement. Um, Asian Americans, young Asian Americans especially, were asking this question of, about assimilation, right? And so they were asking this hard question, what does that even mean? What are we trying to assimilate into? And for them, and I'm talking about the, the folks in the late 60s, the early 70s, who became part of this, you know, mobilized as part of this Asian American movement, like a social justice movement, um, they thought they were, they, they just thought they rejected this idea of assimilation because they didn't want to see themselves assimilating. And essentially when you assimilate and sort of go along with, right, be complicit with um, a society they saw as morally bankrupt, right, like really hell-bent on what they said, exterminating Black people um, and waging imperialist an imperialist war in Southeast Asia. So that's how they understood assimilation. They didn't see it as a good thing. Uh, and so kind of going back to your earlier point, uh, the model minority concept is, is a tricky one to try to untangle because as you're saying, Justin, it sounds so positive. Like <laughs> I think many of us grew up in households where you know we we always craved our, our you know praise from our parents or something like recognition you know these kinds of things, um, but I think it's and I think people often assume that racial stereotypes are always like sound they always sound negative, and so that's what's I think mind blowing and about this in a way is that Asian American studies scholars for for a long time have have made the case that actually. You know, if you take a certain, I would say, ethical stance 
on what a society should look like, you know, in terms of equality, dignity for all, certainly safety and peace uh, for everybody, then being um, lauded or celebrated as a so-called model minority and, and being very specific about what that means. That, again, it means not being acting like Black people. You know, then you can start to see how it's problematic, right? And I think the other, going back to that passage you read from the book, how I think a reason why uh, policymakers pointed to Asians as a model minority in this, in the throes of the 60s, you know, rebellions, is that they seem to be doing well without outside help. They seem to have the right culture, you know, and so if, if you make this argument that, you know, it's, if, if you're facing all these problems, poverty or, you know, health disparities, wealth disparities, and, and it's, it's because you have the wrong culture, then that lets the state, right? It lets the government off the hook. It lets, um, it, it, it um, allows for people to turn away from looking closely at how our economy is set up, right? To sort of benefit some people at the expense of others, for instance, or our political system. Right? And, and turn a blind eye to, let's say, voting rights problems or, or what, what have you. Um, so I think, yeah, the model minority, but at least the way that Asian American studies scholars have looked at it, have, have really um, pulled it apart to show um, that something that seems positive on the surface turns out to, to be quite harmful. Yeah. And I guess like, you know, in light of everything that's happening in the world today, um, specifically protests on, you know, uh, the killing of black people. Um, and, you know, you're a mother of, of two uh, boys. Yes. How are you, you know, as a parent myself, curious to know, how are you talking to this and contextualizing this for your kids? Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a great question. Well, I will say that I think, you know, my husband and I are both historians. And so I think <laughs> they've just grown up and that we live in a college town. So in some ways they've yeah. grown up around a scholarly community. Um, and since they were little, little kids, we've taken them to protest, you know, as in, in this moment, uh, you know, when we go back to thinking about 2014 in Ferguson, yeah. Uh, you know, they've, they've gone to, they've seen, you know, they're, it's familiar to them in a way. I mean, of course, now they're just getting old enough to truly start understanding what it all really means. And, you know, we do live in, in this, I would say, liberal bubble. Um, and on the day-to-day -day basis, because they're not, you know, Black, they don't, um, they don't face uh, the kinds of dangers that are Black you know, friends or community members uh, face even as small children, right? So we have the, we do as Asian, as Asians, we, we have a privilege, right? Um, but I think we, we try to be pretty direct with them actually about what's going on. And we don't, I mean, I don't, we don't necessarily like watch these terrible, you know, videos together of the, the capturing the, that what's actually happened with these police murders or anything like that. But I think we just try to, um, make it a part of our ordinary conversations. And we've done this through time. But, but I will say that right now, and I will admit my husband and I went to the, a very large protest, the largest we've ever seen in our, in our town uh, on Friday. But we left our kids at home because of COVID. We probably would bring, we would bring them ordinarily. But, uh, and, and part of me does regret that because I don't know if they fully understand right now how 
what this seems to be a turning point in our yeah. in our country. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, hopefully for the better, obviously. Yeah. Um, and then I guess the last question is, you know, I've raved about your book, The Colors of Success. Um, tell us about what you're working on next and uh, when folks can expect to see that ready oh, for purchase. Sure. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so right now I'm writing, it's kind of like a sequel to The Color of Success. And the working title is Over Overrepresented Asian Americans in the Age of Affirmative Action. And um, I, how it starts, so basically this book, I hope will be a 50-ish year history of essentially Asian American identity and politics. So from the 1960s to the present, and I'm gonna hopefully even bring it up to like 2020 and you know, beyond. we'll see what kind of happens from here. Um, and it's, it started with a simple question for me. You know, I've always, I think, I think just growing up here, you, you, there's a consciousness where, you know, you know, you're not white, you know, you're not black. And so, uh, so many of us, we've always, we lived with this question, like, where do we fit into this racial order? Um, and I think, you know, by the time I got to college, I noticed that um, there was, there's this um, concept, I guess you could call it, um, and we'll see this phrase a lot, the underrepresented minorities, right? And, and when I read that, I usually think, oh, they mean, um, you know, racial minorities who, except for Asians, <laughs> it often means that. And so I just started to get curious how that concept came about. And that has led me, and I've been working on this for a while, but, and I'm, I'm kind of slow, um, but, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's trying to understand how Asian American, and I put that in quotes, that identity really was invented by uh, the folks who participated in the Asian American movement. And it was a political, it began as a political identity. So how did it start from the streets, right? From um, the streets of, of San Francisco or Seattle or New York, Chicago, and how did that work its way up into like federal policy or let's say hiring policy at, you know, corporations, you know, and so it's, it is part of an affirmative action story, but I think it's, I, I hope I can talk about racial politics, not just in terms of affirmative action, because of course, Asian Americans are big players in that issue right now, but thinking about um, some of the big issues of our time. And I really think that is the Black Lives Matter issue. So I think that's, that is going to be the, the arc of, of, of the story when it, gets, when it gets written. Still a work in progress. Still a work in progress, yeah. Great. Thank you, Professor. Appreciate all your time. And again, on behalf of the community, thank you for all your work and just you know contextualizing our lives, our heritage, our history. Um, your book is definitely one that I will recommend my kids read when they can. Um, so thank you so much for everything and thanks for joining today. I really appreciate this time. Thanks for listening and talking. Thanks, Professor. Okay, see Take ya. Care. Bye. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Asian Tech Readers. Please share this with your friends and follow us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform. Looking forward to our next conversation. And until then, take care.